Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Why don't we talk about protests of the police? This is a, a pretty awkward position to put the police in, go out and make sure that that these people are safely protesting you. Uh, what are some of the issues that you see or that you wrote about in your book? One of the things about, I think, policing protests is that we think of the First Amendment as the main source of our right to protest. And certainly it does provide a right to speak. That's what free speech is. And that includes political protests. But protests are subject, like other First Amendment activities, to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. And under that guise, the police have a lot of discretion about how to manage political protests. So that's one problem, which is the First Amendment actually doesn't get us that far. It doesn't allow the full range of activities that we might consider worth protecting. How do you mean? For example, you know, a reasonable time, place and manner restriction could mean that an unpermitted protest that briefly blocks a highway or blocks a street could result in mass arrests. It could mean that small amounts of property damage or violence in a crowd lead everyone in the crowd to be effectively treated as lawbreakers. The First Amendment permits governments ahead of time to set a reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on protests, but also permits police in real time to decide a lot of how thoroughly people will be allowed to protest. And so a lot of the law of a lot of the rights to protest is decided actually not in courts, but on the street. You raised a couple of really interesting examples, one related to this time, place and manner provision. You know, I'm envisioning maybe I have the right to stand on the sidewalk with three or four friends and and talk about how how bad the policing is. Yet if 200 more people join in and start clogging the the sidewalk or the street, then the police may be authorized to break up that peaceful protest. Within the scope of the First Amendment, the First Amendment offers some protection to be sure, but within the scope of the First Amendment, departments take very different approaches to disorder or to protests that interfere, you know, cause congestion, block traffic, involve small amounts of property damage. Some departments are focused on facilitating free speech rights. They see that as part of law enforcement because, of course, the First Amendment is a law that the police are tasked with enforcing, which means protecting free speech, not just protecting non-protesters or protecting property from free speechers. And so you know, one issue is whether the police see that as part of their role. In departments where they embrace protecting the First Amendment, you see a very, very different attitude towards low-level disruption that results from protests, much more permissive attitude. And this is partly driven by community sentiment. Communities that value free speech and value political protest will and can demand that their police departments treat that as part of their mission, which is facilitating free speech. All of this is is really fascinating. Some of it is incredibly troubling. And for the legal mind, it you know it can also be a little bit of a puzzle where you're trying to to understand how these 
conflicting ideals work themselves out. One area that you mentioned was in a crowd. You know, I'm there peacefully protesting. Let's say it's an environmental protest and I'm saying, you know, let's stop climate change. And next to me is 20 other people saying, yeah, we should stop climate change. And then three or four people in the back are throwing rocks through people's windows. Why am I allowed to be tarnished with the same brush as those people who are actually breaking the law just because they're standing near me? Yeah, that's actually a complicated one. Constitutional rights are individual rights. In fact, the Constitution's pretty resistant into respecting group rights. And yet that's clearly a context in which we are permitting an intrusion on one individual's rights in order to solve a problem that's created by another individual. I mean, this also comes up in the use of force context. So if the police use tear gas against a crowd because of a couple of people's activities, well, everyone in that crowd is being subject to a police use of force. We might want to think differently about regulating uses of force or dispersal orders that interfere with many people's rights. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't think very carefully about those distinctions. So is it a question of practicality that the commanding officer is making a decision on necessity and you know when there's certain scale Uh, individual treatment is just not a, a luxury that they can deal with? Well, every state has either a riot law or a dispersal law or unlawful assembly law, and sometimes all of the above, that permits police to decide that a crowd has reached a certain level of violence or disruption and then make orders to disperse the crowd. And at that point, so long as they provide notice to the people in the crowd and an opportunity for people to comply with the order, then they conduct arrests to enforce the unlawful assembly order, for example, that ends the protest. That is a full stop to the exercise of First Amendment rights. But it's something that police use frequently to break up crowds. So the two of them of the requirements, and I don't know, correct me if there are more, but one is a clear notice. And does everyone have to have been able to hear that notice? And then the ample time to exit, what does that mean in terms of minutes? Is it five minutes or is it 15 minutes? This is a problematic area. And again, there's no, there are no hard lines and the courts are sort of permissive here. But what we're talking about is first, there's the triggering conditions before the officers are permitted to issue an order because the order itself is a restriction on free speech. And then there's the, what are the conditions that have to exist before the police can enforce that order? And I mentioned two, which is there has to be notice. And that usually does not mean actual notice. It doesn't mean that every person in the crowd heard the order, but it also means that if a police officer just says to his friend, hey, you think it's time? And then goes, hey guys, get out, you know, get out of here. He can't then arrest a thousand people who wouldn't have had the opportunity, any possibility of hearing that order. So, you know, courts struggle with what actually constitutes sufficient notice to the crowd, but If you get arrested because you can't quite get out of there, because, for example, other people are refusing to leave, then have you received fair notice and an opportunity to depart or no? It seems a very clear no. In deciding whether those arrests are lawful, right? And remember, there are different questions here. There's the, did you commit a crime by violating the unlawful order? But then there's a separate question of, did the police conduct an illegal arrest when they arrested you for doing so? So you might have a 
defense, which is to say I had no way out of there. But does that also mean that the police officer should be civilly liable or the department should be civilly liable for uh, for conducting that arrest? And practically speaking, does that entitle you to anything? Not never, not never. And in this summer's events and in the protest after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, you did see courts get concerned about, uh, concerned enough to issue some preliminary injunctions requiring police departments that were facing repeated protests to be more careful about notice and the opportunity to depart following a dispersal order. But that's still an area where courts are not extremely restrictive. As in many areas, waiting to let these things get sorted out in court is often an ineffectual strategy. I mean, we really need more front-end rules for how we want police to handle these things, because at the back end, after they've done it, courts are really reluctant to sort of second-guess police who are making hard decisions in the moment. But police, if told you cannot conduct arrests under the following circumstances, largely won't do so. Professor, one of the ways that you know these police abuses have come to light is through the videotaping of police. Why don't we talk about the laws surrounding that? Threshold question, do we have a constitutional right to video the police? Almost every court that has addressed this question has said that we do. The Supreme Court has not heard any of these cases yet, but every circuit court and most of the state Supreme Courts that have addressed the question have said, yes, there is a First Amendment right to video record the police activities when they're conducted in public. There's some difference between recording and interfering. How would you draw that line? Like other First Amendment activities, recording the police is subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. And courts are now struggling. So for a decade, there was this litigation about whether video recording was a First Amendment right. Now, the cases are turning to the question of, well, what kind of restrictions are reasonable, time, place, and manner restrictions on video recording the police? Just like we talked about interfering with the police or you know, a bystander getting in the face of the police when they're conducting an arrest, if a citizen with a video camera walks right up to an officer who's conducting an arrest, is within a few feet of that officer, is that now protected First Amendment activity? Or is that something that police officers can order them back or and conduct an arrest if they fail to follow that order? And we still are working on that in the courts. I and mean, the courts haven't yet decided what constitutes interfering with the police such that it would be, you can restrict that First Amendment activity. Why don't we work our way in from bystanders to people actually involved? Starting with the bystanders, I mean, how many videos have you seen uh, where the officer says, excuse me, sir, turn off your camera or excuse me, sir, put away your camera. What is that? There are a lot of those. I mean, this has been a right that's developing over time, but the technology has outstripped the law and the law has outstripped the legal training that police officers have received. And so you will often see police resisting, less so now, but resisting being videotaped by either ordering people to stand back or by telling them to put away their cameras. And there are times when we might be concerned about 
videotaping activities, even those activities in public. So for example, if you can imagine a homicide scene where the victim's family has not yet been notified, should we allow private individuals to record a picture of the body and post it to Instagram before the family is notified? That's a tough question. Uh, The First Amendment would protect video recording. That's not interfering with, necessarily interfering with the carrying out of the law enforcement duties. But we might consider, some courts might consider it a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction to forbid that activity. I'm not suggesting that that's the vast majority of the cases in which police are stopping people from recording the police. But I do want to say that it is, it can be at, at least at times a complicated question. Overwhelmingly, though, people should be permitted to record police activities in public. And increasingly, police recognize this. But for a long time, they didn't. And you saw this resistance. How about? If it's an ongoing investigation and there's something that's somehow confidential, I could certainly imagine an officer not wanting it to be public knowledge that something is happening or perhaps believing that they might have a leg up in their investigation if something did not become public knowledge. Is that good enough to tell someone to put away their camera? You know, I haven't seen a lot of those cases yet. You know, we see a lot of those questions with respect to police video recording, which is when are police required to record and when can they turn off their cameras in places where they are required to make recordings or when may they record and when they may not record. Because sometimes recording by a police officer, just like by a citizen, can be extremely intrusive. You know, imagine a victim of a sexual assault who wants to report that assault but doesn't want to be recorded doing so. The same thing is true. You know, that issue is raised both by public recordings and by police recordings. I haven't seen a lot of cases involving the former yet. We are seeing statutes which are addressing the latter. How about with relation to a minor? I mean, the courts do treat minors differently in in many respects when there's a victim. They're not identified by name. Does that carry over somehow into the ability to record, let's say the victim of a crime happens to be a minor, would that give grounds to tell people to put away their cameras? Well, remember that, you know, when police officers are interacting with victims, they can do so, they can easily bar video cameras by going inside. So they were really talking about uh, videotaping public police activities. And so a lot of these questions are handled by police themselves merely by moving the activities into private locations. You know, one thing is, it's really important to remember how recent, and it's so universal right now that it is very difficult to remember how recent change this is in policing and in the world, right? The first iPhone comes about in 2006. And so this has been a very short period of time in which for the first time in history, Many members of the public can see many police activities, something that was just not accessible. And so we're much more aware now of some of the harms of policing that were largely invisible, except to the communities that suffered, especially communities of color. Other communities, especially uh, well-off communities, are totally unaware their experience of policing is completely changed now by seeing some of what goes on outside of their usual view. Um, And so not just the cameras themselves, but the technologies of distribution have been a dramatic change in public understanding of the police. So powerful. It, It sounds to me like a lot of the flaws that we have in policing the police, you know, perhaps 
you know, what's the expression that sunlight is, uh, is the best disinfected. So maybe a little more exposure will be helpful in cleaning up some of the nastier side of policing. I don't know. Have you looked at the data on that? Is there data to back that up? So I didn't know if there's data to back that up yet, but we do know that the tremendous attention. I mean, there are complicated things going on because there's both the video recording of police. There's the distribution technologies, which used to be, I mean, it's not just the iPhone, it's YouTube and now social media. It used to be when George Holiday recorded the beating of Rodney King, he first went to the police department and offered the videotape to the police department. He had this big handheld camera he had just gotten and the police department expressed no interest. So he went to the local news station and they took up the tape. And then once it was played on air, it got picked up by the national networks and 24 hour cable news, which had recently had less to do because the Gulf war had ended. And so the tape gets played again and again and again. And if it had happened two weeks earlier, while the Gulf war, was still going on, we might never have seen as national news. The what an interesting point. Yeah. It's not true today. Why? Because the media aren't the mediators. They don't control now whether you see a video or not. And similarly, protests do not, you know, can be organized very quickly by social media. And so that we're both much more aware of what's going on in policing and we're much more, we can be much more responsive to it, both on mass and in terms of calling our, you know, politicians. And so what we've seen is a, a radical increase in attention to policing and it recently and a legal response to that. You know, state legislatures are much more engaged in the project of thinking about how to reform the police than they were even five years and definitely 10 years ago. We've talked about videotaping the police who are engaged in an arrest of someone else. What about when you're at the center, when you're the star of this horrific show? Do you have the right then to say, officer, I want to turn on my recording device or officer, I'd like to, I'd like to videotape this as I'm being arrested to preserve my rights and to preserve what is actually transpiring? There are two different questions there. One is what you have a First Amendment right to do. And the other is really me might think of as a Fourth Amendment question or a question of state law and arrests, which is what may police officers prohibit you from doing physically during the course of a stop or an arrest? And so a police officer stops you when you're in your car and says, put your hands on the steering wheel. And that's where officer safety, right? So they can see your hands and you couldn't reach for a weapon that the officer can't see. And courts consider that a reasonable exercise of police authority to protect the safety of an officer. When, if you think of that as a reasonable command, then somebody who says, no, I'm just reaching to start my iPhone is no different than someone who says, I'm just reaching for something else. Either way, the courts might be concerned about disallowing police officers from giving commands, especially in the context of officer safety. Now, there are some real, there are some empirical questions about whether officers are really at risk as much as they sometimes believe themselves to be. But assuming that you believe that police officers are at risk in these contexts, and courts certainly do, then they're likely not to treat the First Amendment right as overcoming the police authority to issue those kinds of commands. 
A quick break for those who are earning CLE MCLE credit for this interview. The code is 082316. Again, that's 082316. Back to the interview. What if the camera's already on? What if, you know, before the police officer arrived, you put your driver's license on the dashboard and you turned on your phone and then you put your hand on the steering wheel and you politely let the officer know, my driver's license is on the steering wheel and I'm recording the conversation. Can they then tell you to stop? Yeah, so then I think it's purely a First Amendment question. And the answer, I would assume, again, the the case law is sort of thin on this for a variety of reasons. But the answer is should be no. It is not a reasonable time, place or manner restriction to prohibit somebody from recording their encounter with the police during that encounter if doing so does not interfere with the arrest or create a risk to the officer. What's your instinct on what police officers, how police officers would treat that? Is that something that would prevalently be seen as controversial at this point or? You know, it's a really mixed bag for a long time. You know, I sometimes would do trainings with police officers as the rise of video recording started. And I would tell police, you know, this is a problem that kind of was sorting itself out much more in the streets than in the courts because police officers were resisting being recorded and then they would be recorded resisting being recorded. And you've seen those videos go viral too, right? And on one hand, those can be a little bit depressing because you say, wow, look at this officer not only arresting somebody, but then resisting our ability to make that arrest transparent. But when you see that video, that's also a check on officers engaging in that activity. Um, And you see that some departments have faced some public scrutiny and community opposition for engaging in that behavior. I mean, I guess one of my takeaways is always, you know, the law of the police, we should tweak it. We should make it better than it is. We should make both the rules that govern police activities, especially the state law rules, clearer and give more guidance on the front end to police officers. And we should have better remedies on the back end. But we should also recognize that a lot of the ways that we, the primary way we govern the police is not actually in court and using law. It's in communities, deciding what kind of policing they want through the political process. And we should be very active about asserting our views about the costs and benefits of policing in that context. One more detour in the police recording aspect of our conversation. How about police recordings? Let's say I'm the one being arrested and in many police departments, their body cameras. Do I have any right to see that body cam footage? Do I have any right, you know, even if I'm being charged by the police, do I have any right to access that perhaps for my defense or perhaps if it's a relevant issue? So this turns out to be almost exclusively a matter of state law and states are very, very different in how they handle this issue. Every state has some form, is some kind of sunshine or freedom of information law that allows some access to public records. But whether body camera footage is considered a public record to which the public has right of access is extremely 
variable. Some don't consider it a public record at all, but permit access under some circumstances. Some consider it a public record, but don't allow access. And some consider it a public record and allow a lot of access. And so, and then the question is who gets access and under what circumstances? There are times when that evidence is discoverable in a criminal case, but those are relatively limited and they're usually If it's exculpatory, then it would be Brady material and the government would have to turn over that footage. But that's really only when somebody is prosecuted. And, you know, many arrests never result in criminal prosecutions. And certainly many arrests involve excessive force. The charges are often dropped. And so we're not going to remedy that in criminal discovery. Then we have to think about other ways to make sure that people have access to that footage. And that's an issue with state law. Why wouldn't it? be just a matter of law. You know, as the defendant, I have a right to the evidence that the government has against me. How is the camera footage not evidence that the government has against me, especially if the arrest itself is at issue? Well, you actually don't in criminal discovery have evidence, have a right to all evidence that the government has against you. You have a right to exculpatory evidence, which is evidence that suggests your innocence or evidence that undermines that could be used to impeach a government witness. And you have a right to discover certain kinds of evidence that's being used in court by the police. But you don't have a right to all evidence that the government has against you, at least not a matter as a matter of constitutional law. Professor, we've been talking about constitutional law and state laws. We're also in a new executive. We have a new president. What could the president, what could President Biden do that would make a difference in terms of regulating the police? A lot of regulating the police is a subject for legislation, but there are things that Biden can do, even if political gridlock continues and there's no new legislation federally on policing. One example that he's already signaled he intends to do is more aggressively enforce civil rights, federal civil rights laws. And that includes both prosecuting more police officers and turning the lights back on and a program that President Trump shut down, which was a civil lawsuits against police departments that engage in a pattern of practice of constitutional constitutional violations in order to reform those departments. So that's clearly something the Biden administration is going to do. I think they could do more as well. In what regard? Well, so for example, you know, right now, uh, federal law enforcement agencies are not a model of accountability and transparency for local law enforcement. Local law enforcement agencies, they're very variable, but some of them are out there in front on this, trying to work with their communities to make sure that they're uh, transparent about their activities, that they publish use of force reports, they talk about stops and the demographics of those stops, that all the policies are online that disciplinary procedures are transparent and accessible, complaint mechanisms are easy to access. None of that is true of most federal law enforcement agencies. And that's something that Biden could help fix tomorrow with an executive order. I mean, I think federal law enforcement agencies, we're talking DEA, FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, the ICE, all of these agencies should be models of accountability and transparency, not laggards. And that's not true today. One area I suggested is that they could make federal law enforcement a model. But another is that a lot of federal programs now actually incentivize uh, 
kind of harmful policing, that there's an inconsistent message being given out by the federal government. On one hand, we enforce civil rights statutes, but on the other hand, we encourage asset forfeiture and give out military equipment to local police departments without a lot of scrutiny of what they're being used for. And so I think the other thing that the Biden administration could do is start providing a coherent vision of fair and effective and uh, minimally harmful policing and make sure that federal programs are consistent in pursuing that approach. Professor, before we let you go, I've been referencing it on and off. Um, You have a new book on police law. Do you have one handy? I I do, actually. I just got it the other day, and I'm really excited about it. I've been working on it for a bunch of years. Um, It's mainly a tool for students, but actually it's really intended as a resource also for lawyers or journalists or activists who want to understand better how we currently regulate the police and how we might do so differently. Well, Professor Harmon, thank you for taking the time to join us today on this important topic. And as this issue is clearly not going away, perhaps we'll we'll have you back for follow-up in the future. It's been a pleasure. It's something I'm obsessed with and have been for a long time, and I'm always happy to talk about it. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.